Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. Amazing. So can I please stand for the scripture? So today's reading is from Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be, ch- you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rains on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what w- reward will you get? Are you even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thanks be the Lord. Wonderful, friends. Grab a seat. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ash, for that reading. Um, Friends, what a delight just to be together for the afternoon. It's cold outside and hopefully, given that we're so huddled up together, we're a touch warmer inside. My name's Alex. I have the privilege of serving alongside Dylan and Aaron and Zoe as part of this pastoral team. And our hope is that we would indeed see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. It's our mission, it's our vision, and we really want to see renewal in our time, not just in the denomination of which we're a part, but across southeast Queensland, across the eastern seaboard of Australia, and maybe even outside of Australia in the world. Not just because we plant more new life churches, but because people get a vision of discipleship and they take that to wherever God takes them, and we see the world change for Jesus and for good. Um, Just want to piggyback off the conference announcement and just say we're going to have a whole host of things available for parents with kids as well. There'll be a creche for two-year-old kids and under, uh, supervised, there'll be kids' programs, age-appropriate at different levels, and so everything you'll experience as an adult in the room in the auditorium, our hope is to mimic that and imitate that for our young people in other rooms in a sort of appropriate way. So if you have kids and you're thinking, oh, I won't come to conference because there won't be anything um, that'll uh, cater to them, myth, absolute myth. Come along, bring your children, and the hope is that we'd have an awesome time together, just as God's people, one big family, multiple churches. Awesome. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to start with a bit of a story. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing by your Spirit. And I'm just aware, Lord, that sometimes we're not aware of it. Lord, you've got an invitation for each and every single one of us this afternoon. Father, I'm mindful that there's people in the room, myself included, that are seasoned Christians, and this can be routine. And Lord, I'm mindful that there's people in the room who are just giving this Christianity thing a bit of a check out, and they're wondering whether anything that gets said from the front is going to mean anything for their lives. And Lord, I do not have 
the skill, the power, the capacity to bridge that gap, Lord, even for my own heart. And so, Father, I pray as we step into your scriptures, inhabit your story, would you meet us by your spirit? Would your word speak powerfully to us? Father, would we see this not as a bunch of information that we can pat ourselves on the back for having known it, but actually would this transform us, Jesus? The word, the worship, the table, the fellowship, would all of this just be something which shapes us, tilts us in the direction of your image, Jesus? Father, we don't want to play church. We don't want to sit in the pew. We don't want to pretend that we're coming to receive a service. This is the gathering of the Lord's people. And so, Father, as you push me maybe to yell because your word's so powerful as you push me to converse quietly and teach, Father, would all of it just be a means by which you meet us, give us ears to hear, a ready heart, and Father, would our Monday change because of what we experience here today on this Sunday? In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Friends, such a joy to be in church together this afternoon. I want to start with a bit of a story. The older I get, the more I'm intrigued by people of history. And one of the characters that I've learned a bit about over the last few years is a guy named Martin Luther King Jr. You know his name? Awesome. Martin Luther King Jr., he was one of the people through whom the civil rights movement was activated in the States. And around the 1950s and 1960s, he spent a lot of time preaching, teaching, witnessing, all in the direction of contending for all people being made in the image of God and being worthy of dignity, value, respect, and worth. He was speaking in America witnessing there, grew up in the South, traveled all across America, preaching in different churches with one message. All God's people, from a treble white to a bass black, are important on God's keyboard, is what he would say. And he contended in such a way that actually America was changed because of his witness. He, in 1968, died. He was assassinated. But throughout his life, whether in public policy or public discourse or preaching in the pulpit, he would contend for the equality of all people. And because of him, the Civil Rights Act was sworn into public policy in America. And the way in which blacks were seen in the States was elevated in a way that historically was unparalleled up to that point. He changed the world and he changed America. And he had this beautiful thing that he'd say in a sermon called Love Your Enemies, zooming in on the text that Jesus gives to us in the Bible we just read this beautiful thing he'd say to summarize his whole philosophy about how he could tend, contend for justice, mercy, goodness, beauty, and truth in the world. And here's what he said. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Now here you've got a man who in the face of his public witness, he was, a, he was threatened with death, People would call his family home, speak to his wife, and threaten to bomb his place. Indeed, his place was bombed multiple times. And in the face of all that violence, all that threat, all that animosity, and all that evil, here's what he said. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And he spawned one of the greatest cultural revolutions to change the face of America and the face of the world. It was called nonviolent protest. It was called the love of enemies. And he said, actually, the teaching that Jesus gave in this passage inspired his life 
and actually should come to every single Christian as they navigate following Jesus in this world. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. One of the hardest teachings of Jesus, one of the most confounding and costly invitations of those who claim to follow him. Welcome to church. We, um, we've been going through a sermon series called Paradox, A Different Way to Live, and our hope has been that we'd see the two Jesuses that we so often find easy just to pick one of. What do I mean? All of us have had that experience where we open the Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see the life of this man, and we see one side of him. One side is this beautiful, this sweet Jesus, meek and mild, God incarnate, come close, safe, warm, inviting, friendly, lovely Jesus. He's compelling. But then you read a few chapters in and you start hearing him say these things like, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. You want to be first, go last. You want to be great, be a servant. And you meet the guy who at one one side of the facet of the coin is compelling and beautiful and lovely and warm on the other side, costly, counterintuitive, and it's a paradox. And as a church, we've come to discover in these last few weeks as we looked at the paradox of greatness, the paradox of I can't remember the other ones, but they were there. Go through our podcast, church at NU forward slash Brisbane. But we've come to see the paradox of our king and the one who calls us to live paradoxical lives, following the costly way of Jesus as we also apprentice under the compelling man that he is, loved deeply, warm, safe, inviting, but goodness me, he'll change your life and make you pay things that you never thought you'd be prepared to pay in the first place. Paradox, a different way to live. And today we come to the paradox of love. Loving one's enemies. I want to start with two questions, and we're just going to walk through the first three verses of this passage. When I ask you this question, do not get like David, I think it's David Guetta in your head when I ask this question. You know where I'm going. I want you to meditate on this, like seriously, just take a moment. It's going to be really hard now. What is love? Just take a moment. I want you to just define that in your own head for a second. How would you define love? What is love? And a second question, do you love? Now when I hear that second question, I often think, well, I try my very best, thank you, pastor. I think I do. And then I read these words from Jesus, and my own definition really falls short. So let's jump into it. Let's discover a bit together. And my hope is that as we talk about sort of this big ethereal world we call enemies and justice and love, we'll be able to land really personally and think about who we are in the face of God, in the sight of God, and how that could change our life for every single day. So let's jump into it. Jesus says these words. First part of the story that Ashley read for us, verse 43 He says this, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's verse 43. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus is doing this all the time. A bit of context here. He's taking traditions or phrases or sentences or wordings that his audience at the time actually had absorbed at face value. And most of them were taken from the Jewish scriptures, from the Old Testament. And so when Jesus says, all throughout Matthew 5, you heard it was said, For example, earlier in that chapter, you shall not commit adultery. The people there are going, that's a new one. They're not going, that's a new one to us. 
They're sitting there going, actually, yes, that's our Old Testament. That is the Ten Commandments of God. That's one of them. And Jesus is picking up on cultural traditions or Old Testament texts, and he's giving them a spin and saying, you've heard it was said, and then he's upgrading it. So in this case, he says, you know, Matthew 5, um, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Again, welcome to church. Really good to have you here. Helpful teachings of Jesus. But he upgrades it. He takes a text that they know and upgrades it or spins it or changes it or inflects it or does something different with it because he's the new teacher on the scene. He's the new Jewish rabbi. And what he does in this text is he takes a passage they know, but here's the thing. It's not a passage from the Old Testament. Leviticus 18, which is the third book in the Old Testament, I think around there. It's probably the fifth. doesn't matter. It's one of the early books in the first five books of the Bible. And it says, love your neighbor. But it doesn't say, hate your enemies. So how did the audience in first century Israel come to think that one of the things they should do if they want to see justice in the world is love their neighbor but hate their enemy? How did they come to think that? And there's a bit of a story to tell here. Do you, can you just go with me for a second on this? At the end of the Old Testament, the people of God were exiled from the land that God had made for them, Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it was the height of their religious activity, the height of their political activity. It was home. It's where God made them who they were to be. It's where they felt safe and comfortable. It's where God gave them their identity. They had worship there. They had the throne there. It was home. But in around 786 BC, and then again in 584 BC, around then, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians came through and they exiled God's people from their land. And after that moment, the people that were the enemies of God, God's people, that is, were the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, all those that had pulled them from the land that God made them for. And then in that space, you've got the people of God asking questions about, great, well, now I don't know what my identity is because actually I got my identity from the place that I grew up in, from the place where the seat of power was, where the seat of religion is. That's now gone from me. I don't know who my God is because he said this would be the promised land, but now we're taken from it. So is God real anymore? What's God like now? And they're asking theological questions, personal questions. And in the face of those questions, they're identifying their enemy. Their enemy is anyone who would be against the people of God. First it was Assyria, then it was Babylon. And you think, awesome, maybe this will be sorted out in a while. No, because then Persia comes through, then the Egyptians come through, then the Greeks come through, all the way through until about the second century BC, around 170 BC. And there's a Jewish family called the Maccabeans. And and we don't know, this isn't in the Bible, this is like history book kind of stuff. And the Maccabeans were a Jewish family They're a rioting bunch. They're a violent bunch. And they said, if we can take back God's land by force, we will will inherit the promises of old. We will become the people of God again if we so overthrow overthrow the enemy by which we're oppressed. And in 164 BC... The Maccabeans rolled into Jerusalem. They overthrew Greece and the, and the Ptolemites, and they took back the seat of their power, the seat of their religion, and they won. And they established for themselves what you could call justice, beauty, goodness for themselves. And on the way, they hated their enemy. And this became the people group that spawned the tradition which gave parameters to another people group in the first century AD called the Zealots. And actually this phrase, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, is something that the zealots would speak to one another in the caves on the outskirts of Jerusalem called Qumran. So here was the philosophy of the day. And here's what Jesus names for his disciples because it was in the waters that they swim in. 
If you want to see justice in the world, love your neighbours, hate your enemies. You want to see goodness in the world? Love those that are like you. Reject those that are different. You want to see beauty, justice roll down like a river, goodness, shalom, peace established in the world for you and your people? Yeah, cloister off with your tribe and go to war. Violent, militaristic war on anyone else. It's the kingdom by violent means. It's the kingdom by force. It's the kingdom by human weaponry. Jesus names it for them. Fascinating, right? You've heard it was said. And here we have Jesus. This is my first point. Jesus in first century Israel, naming for his followers that the cultural waters within which they swim say that justice will only be established according to cultural standards if you would but identify your enemy and try to overthrow them with violence, military power, and war. He names it for them. And as I wrestled this week thinking through, gosh, what would Jesus, the perennial Jesus, the alive Jesus, the risen, ruling, reigning king, what would he say to 21st century Christians gathered in a church in a Western liberal democracy where we've got good coffee, a flat white on tap, almond croissants to eat your heart out? What would he say to us? Who are our enemies? And how would he challenge them and name them for us? And at the start of the week, I was just like, man, I actually don't think I've got any enemies. Does anyone feel like that sometimes? I'm like, life's good. Things are sweet. It's okay. And then you read the news, you're like, oh, things are heating up above us and, you know, that kind of thing. And you start to think, maybe they're my enemies. And you start to try and identify political enemies or ethnic enemies. But actually, I don't think the enemies we've got in 21st century Australia are the same that they would have been back then. But I don't think, therefore, that Jesus has nothing to say to us. See, I think it's actually really easy for us to think we have enemies in our current cultural context. Why? I'm going to get a bit of, do a bit of sociology with us for like two minutes and then we're going to come back out of it and move into Jesus' second point. Is that okay? Yeah. Awesome. So when sociologists talk about the way in which culture sort of defines itself morally, they usually identify two kinds of culture. The first kind of culture is what you call a dignity culture, and the second kind is an honor culture. I remember reading this book back when I was in the UK called The Rise of Victimhood Culture by Bradley Manning and Jason Campbell, and also a guy named Jonathan Haidt, for what it's worth. Beautiful sociologists, wonderful cultural analyzers. And they identify that the way in which cultures organize themselves morally can be told and understood in the way in which they respond to grievances and sort out conflict. What do I mean? Well, there's honor cultures. And in honor cultures, the people that get esteemed and rise to the tippy top of leadership in organizations, in families, in institutions are those who have great honor. Make sense? And the way in which people sort out their conflict in honor cultures is by protecting their honor. On the other end of the spectrum, at the same time, in dignity cultures, the people that rise to the tippy top of institutions, families, leadership settings, whatever, are those who are dignified. And the way in which people sort out their conflict is through protecting their dignity. I'll give you an example. You're watching a Midwestern film. And in the med Midwestern film, you're in a bar saloon and someone playing the piano tells a joke which you're the object of. And in telling that joke, they insult you and they dishonor your honor. Does that make sense? They offend your honor. And so the way in which you sort out and protect your honor in that kind of culture is you say to the individual at the piano, hey, that offended me, let's go outside and have a, have a draw shoot. And what are you doing in that moment? You're protecting your honor, you're defending your authority. You're, that's the way you do it in that culture. That's an honor culture. You deal with conflict by protecting your honor. In a dignity culture, bear with me here, in a dignity culture, the way in which you sort out moral conflict, being offended, 
being hurt by other individuals is you protect your dignity. So I want you to imagine you're in a bar in upper London and someone is sitting by the um, grand piano. They make a joke. You're the object of that joke. It offends you. And so what do you do? Well, it's a dignity culture. So you go up to that individual really quietly and you say, hey, can we just have a quiet word in the back room in the storeroom of the kitchen? That offended me and I'd like to talk it through. So you take that individual into the back room, you have a conversation, and you say, hey, I thought that joke was mildly inappropriate, didn't enjoy it, didn't like being the object of it. I'd really appreciate next time if you were to elicit such humor in our midst that I wasn't the object of your joke. And you come out of that private room and you declare to the world, everything's okay, you're dignified, they're dignified, everyone's redeemed, it's okay. Dignity culture. And the way in which cultures, and both these cultures are in the West, the way in which cultures work out their grievances and conflict, and the way that they esteem one another in these cultures is either if you defend your honor or you defend your dignity. And what Jason Manning and Bradley Campbell identify is actually the way in which the West is changing. And the West is changing into what we might call a victimhood culture. And a victimhood culture, the way you get esteem And the way your voice gets amplified in the public space or the institution of which you're a part is if you can tell a story at the center of which is your own, the means by which you've been victimized. And if you can so gather credit and currency for yourself by saying, actually, here's my identity and here's the way in which through history and in my own experience, I've been victimized by all these different forces, whether personal or political, systematic or individual, and the way in which you get to amplify your voice and be heard and get esteem and currency is you gather facts that corroborate a victim narrative. Now, here's what I'm not saying. People can genuinely be victims in this life. That's real. But there's a difference between being a victim and using victimhood status to get moral currency in the world. So they note this. So the way you deal with conflict, therefore, in a victimhood culture is you therefore identify the people that are against you and you corral those who are for you and you say, therefore, that everything that people that disagree with me do is motivated by hate and everything that people do who agree with me is motivated by love because we're all part of the same identity group. And here's what happens, therefore, on an individual and a public level, a personal and a political level. On a personal level, it means that the way you see the world can only be Those who agree with me are for me, and therefore those who disagree with me are against me. And you polarize the world. And so people are either wholly good or wholly bad, for me completely or against me completely. On a political and public level, this is the reason that our discourse, our, our dinner table conversations at Christmas are so polarizing. It's why we can't have a meaningful conversation with someone that disagrees with us. Because we think that they are the incarnation of everything that's wrong with the world, but they just have a different political thing in this one little area. And so in a victim culture, the way you sort out conflict is by getting victim currency for yourself. And the way that you get esteem is by telling that story. Now hear me. This is just the waters within which we swim. And there's no shots that I'm taking at any individual or any system or any organisation. I'm noting what two sociologists have noted, and particularly Jonathan Haidt from New York University, as he looks out across culture and tries to understand the way in which our debate and discourse has changed over the years. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is actually it's really easy to identify enemies today. Pause there for a moment. A lot of us in this room, myself included, 
can find it really easy to be like, oh my gosh, they disagree with me. I think they're my enemy. They're not for me. They're definitely against me. And just because they're against me in this one particular way, they're actually therefore the incarnation of everything that's wrong with the world. And here's what happens. We talk about it on a personal level. That's fine. On a personal level, here's what you do, therefore. You harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. And harboring bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking poison and thinking it's going to affect the other person. It actually stops you from growing into the kind of person that can steadily grow in their ability to sacrifice and give love and grow. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, that if you're a victim that it doesn't matter. You just need to grow through it and forgive. Not at all. Being a victim is real. Like, that's, that's actually real. But what I am saying is there is a cultural ether that if we're not critical about, particularly as the church, here's what it means for us as the church. It means that if people disagree with us, and here's the thing, they're going to increasingly going to disagree with us. We could identify people out there that disagree with us as our enemy, or even people in the church that disagree with us as our enemy, all because we've been uncritical in the way that we sort of work out conflict and grievances. And when you identify people as an enemy, they can only therefore be an obstacle to your joy, and they turn from being the people God invited you to pray for and lay your life down for, now into the people you avoid and rally against in public spaces. And here's what Jesus would say. That's just what you've heard said. And he's going to introduce us to a different way. Let me just read a quote from Martin Luther King and move on to point number two. He says, The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. I want to say welcome to church once more, but I think that joke has pretty run its course. This is all that Jesus has told us we've heard people say. This is Jesus identifying the cultural waters within which we swim, and he's got a different narrative, because here's what he says next. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. A bit more context here. This is a passage that's in a larger sermon, which is characteristically called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through to Matthew 7. But Matthew's gospel, chapter 1 through to chapter 28, is all about demonstrating Jesus as the new teacher, the teacher of Israel. Why? Well, fun fact, I love fun facts. Um, The first five books of the Bible are sort of like the manifesto for the people of God in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in those five books, God establishes his law and he establishes his people. And the idea is that those five books were meant to give marching orders to the people of God in the Old Testament. In Matthew's gospel, scholars break it down into five different sections. And at the end of each section, it starts with a new teaching from Jesus. And those five sections mimic in form, not content, but in form, the same structure of the first five books of the Old Testament. What's happening in the eyes of the writer of the gospel, Matthew? Matthew is telling us, through the form of Matthew's gospel, there are five new books to establish a new people of God, and Jesus is the new Moses. He's the new teacher of Israel. And so when Jesus says, I say to you, it's not a random I from a good moral guy from the first century. It's not just like a nice little add-on from a rabbi that nobody knows. The idea behind Matthew's gospel and the words of Jesus themselves is this, listen to me. 
I have a different way. I want to start something new in the world, and I want you to imagine what it would look like if people inhabited it as a community. So New Life Brisbane, listen to these words from Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And when you hear those words, here's what we should realize in real time. Jesus is creating a new tribe that isn't tribalistic. He's creating a new people that aren't polarized. He's creating a new army whose enemies aren't, are treated like friends because the weapon that we yield is love. And here's the thing Jesus' words begs. Can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine a people so intoxicated with the paradox of love that Jesus modeled and taught about that we as a church would be able to say, actually, we love our enemies. Now, I could get nuanced and sort of make the larger point that I think mature biblical thought does, which is like, we don't really have enemies. Like, our only enemy is Satan in the flesh. But I don't have time. <laughs> but could you imagine this kind of people? On October 2nd, 2006, there was a man named Charles Roberts who walked from his family home into an Amish schoolhouse. Now, a bit of a trigger warning here. And as he walked in, there was a schoolroom being taught, and he asked the men and the teachers to leave, and he tied up 10 girls, shot at will, five died, the others were injured. Charles Roberts, 2006, October 2nd. And in a climactic fashion, he committed suicide at the very end himself. This Amish people did not provoke anything like that from Charles. And it was completely mysterious as to why he would have done anything like that. Now, if I was part of that Amish community, I would have walked over to Terry Roberts, Charles's mum's house, and demanded an explanation, at the least. At the most, I would have pressed charges. Or maybe I would have taken the law into my own hands and out of the brokenness of my own heart, started to sort things out myself. But the Amish people that very same day, before other families had heard what the fate of the other girls that weren't dead yet was, walked over to his house. And he said, hey, on behalf of our community, this is an Amish man to the mother of the, the guy who just killed children in their community. Walked into his house, said to Terry, his mother, hey, we just want you to know you're our friend, not our enemy. As the weeks passed by, the funeral was arranged, and um, the media captured, were trying to capture what was taking place and what was going on. And it was going to be one of those stories that get published, you know, in the media in the States that sort of share, like, this is what's wrong with America, and, you know. So the media was trying to capture that side of the story. And 30 Amish people gathered together and made a chain of arms to block out the media so the mother could mourn. Uh, later that year, I think Terry was diagnosed with cancer. And so while she was at the hospital receiving treatment, there was a young girl in the Amish community who cleaned her home for her. Ten years later, the Washington Post covered the story. And they interviewed Terry and they asked her, what was the effect that the forgiving, costly love that the Amish community had on you? What did it do? And she so had these words to say. No one could ever imagine on that day that something like this would be formed from it, she said. 
because of their response of forgiveness, we were able to heal. This is the kind of community Jesus imagines in the world. Now, we could get nuanced about who our enemies are. We could get politically correct about how we navigate that in the modern world. Let's drill it down. You got someone in life that's hurt you? Imagine this. You got someone in life that's caused you pain? Imagine this. Now, qualifier. If that kind of thing is abuse or unjust harm, forgiveness does not look like storming back in with unwisdom and just being like, it's okay, and forgetting it. That's not what it looks like. Navigate that with wisdom and good mentors. But imagine over time what it could look like to follow our saviour Jesus who took on the cross to love his enemies into spaces where our love in a costly way becomes the agent that heals those that the world would be like, why didn't they just press charges? Beautiful story. Can you imagine in our, in our midst, in our time? You've heard it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies, but I say to you. And then Jesus finally says these words, that you may be. Verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now Jesus goes on and sort of unpacks it a bit more and he says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. And what Jesus does is classic for him. He's a teacher, he's in nature, he looks around and he's like, how can I connect with my original hearers? He's like, oh, think of the rains. God sends them on all people. It doesn't matter what they've done morally, ethically, whether they've stabbed someone in the back, Jesus sends it on all of them. Jesus God sends it on all, he, he loves all people. He's impartial with his love and he paints this picture. Actually, it's not the strength of God's love that's scandalous, it's the objects of his love and it's all people. It's impartial. God loves all people no matter what their story, but it doesn't mean he can't call a spade a spade along the way, you know what I'm saying? And so here Jesus says, be like your father in heaven. So here's my question. Do I, does my ability to obey the command, love your enemies, make me a child of God? Or... Do I do that because I am a child of God, right? And this raises the age-old debate between what we might call legalism and lawlessness. And here's, there's two ways you can live your Christian life, and there's two ways you can hear this command from Jesus. One would be the legalistic way. The legalistic way would be, well, I need to love my enemies so well that finally God would accept me as his son or daughter, then I'll be a child of God and prove that my Father in heaven is indeed my Father. Legalism. And you live your way trying to get God's approval, obey perfectly, be the perfect kind of person, and on the way you become anxious because you're never keeping it, or you become depressed because you realize you never will. Legalism. Other end of the spectrum is, well, because I am God's son then, or daughter, I'm his child, I can therefore do anything and I'll disobey the command. Loving my enemies is purposeless. Jesus has done it all. I don't need to do anything. It's called lawlessness. And we take the commands of Jesus that he would use as the vehicles through which the church would make a difference in the world, and we throw it away and call it grace. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 20th century wouldn't call it grace, he'd call that cheap grace. And be looking at the costly work of Jesus and completely ignoring it, forsaking the world and the God who loved us so much that he sent his son. And so here's what we've got in the story of Jesus. We've got a God who gives us grace, the one that because of whom we can say something like this. Actually, he's done so much for me. I can't help but obey. And here's where I wanna land this afternoon. I would love us each to leave this place going, gosh, I've got a new vision for how I love in this world. But it's only the result of me seeing what Jesus has done for me in the first place, right? And I truly believe that the degree to which you understand you are an enemy of God, that he loves so much into friendship, the degree to which you understand that will be the degree to which you're able to embody this kind of love for the world. 
So here's what one writer said. They said, to return good, evil with good, so I return good with evil, is satanic. To return good with good is human. To return evil with good is divine. So how do we tap into that? I want to ask you to stand. If it's your first time at church, and you're like, goodness me, these guys pull no punches in unpacking the biblical story. I just say, awesome, I'm so glad you're here. If you're a regular at church, you'll know some of my story, but if you're new, here's a bit of an insight into my own life. I, I grew up and I'd describe my, some, myself as someone who thought deeply, but not well. I'd lie in bed at night, think, why am I here? Where's this all going? What's this all for? But I'd never chase up that question the next day with a trusted authority or a friend or someone who knew that we were talking about. And I'd just sit on that question my whole life. And one of the anxieties I had was this. I know that when I do wrong in life, it doesn't just feel like I'm breaking my own personal code. And it doesn't just feel like I'm disagreeing with the rules that society sets. It feels bigger than that. And it feels like I'm actually transgressing some moral boundaries that maybe were instituted by God himself. And so I had a guilt complex. So yes, I was as melancholic then as I am now. <laughs> like I was like, why am I here? Where's this all going? Why does it still feel so meaningful? And who will deliver me from this sense that I've done wrong and not kept the code I wanted to? And the biblical story came in with such explanatory power for me as a 15-year-old. It said, God has made you for himself. And he's made you to be the agent through whom this creation, this world, relationships, people, and himself are stewarded. And the human story is not one in which the divining line between good and evil is that there's good people in here and bad people out there, or there's those that agree with me that are good and those that disagree with me are bad. It's that the dividing line between good and evil runs right down the middle of every human heart such that Martin Luther King in the same sermon could say there's a bit of good in all evil people. There's a bit of evil in all good people. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all of us were made for something way better than we could imagine. And the biblical word that sums this all up is this. Humans are images of God and at the same time we're born as enemies of God. All at the same time. More glorious than we could imagine, more broken than we believe. And when I realized that my disobedience, my dishonor, my rebellion from God made me an enemy with him, you know what it made me want to do? Be legalistic and try and earn my way back into his arms. Like it made me want to be like, no, no, I'm not really your enemy, I'll try and fix myself. No, 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 I haven't really disobeyed, I'm going to try and prove to you that I'm actually really a good person and deep down, like, you'll see, God, you'll see. And the whole time, the diagnosis of the gospel kept coming again and again and again. It said, Alex, you're more broken. You can't fix yourself. You need a savior outside of you. And when I realized that I was an enemy, but because of Jesus, God has made me his friend, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done on my behalf. You know what it made me do? Feel so free. So liberated. It's called grace. And it changed my life when I was 15 years old. And I'd say the same this afternoon for each of us here who might not know Jesus. All of us, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you're new to church and this is your first time, all of us were born at enmity with God. All of us have a debt to pay. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We've all looked God in the face and said, actually, I want to choose my own way, like it's better, God. And he stands there with his wisdom and his grace and says, I think you're wrong, but have a crack. 
and we get to the end of ourselves, we find ourselves in the pit of mud and we think, gosh, how will I get back into the loving arms of my heavenly Father? And we try and fix ourselves and make our way back and pick ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps and the loving Father comes along and says, actually, you're more broken than you believe. You can't fix yourself. You need someone outside of yourself. His name's Jesus. To the degree that you see you have been and in some ways can still be an enemy of God, but so loved by Jesus that he made you his friend. All debts paid, all chains broken, forgiveness delivered, redeemed because of him. Until you experience that, you will not have the power to do what this gives us injunction for. You just won't. I can't. Like, I'm, I, I suck at this. If you disagree with me, I'm, let's go. Let's talk about it. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Pray for those who persecute you. Someone steals your jacket off your back, give them the other one too. I don't know a love like this. And I'm really sure that our world won't know either unless we experience it as a church. And so here's what I want to invite. I want to invite those of us in the room who don't know Jesus and you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit that actually that story describes me. The story Alex says is true about himself, I think is true about me. If that's you, I wanna invite you just to come before Jesus in a safe place like this and say, actually, God, I'm sorry. Would you help me follow after you? Thank you for what you've done. And I wanna also give that call out to those in the room who just feel a bit stale in their own walk with Jesus. And you feel like, goodness me, I've been so concerned. And that's, Actually, we'll get there. That's a particular word. We'll get back to that one. So why don't we close our eyes? The band will come up. They'll lead us in worship in a few moments' time. But if, as I've been speaking, you felt like that story, particularly at the end, as I've described what it means to be a human, broken and beautiful, image of God, yet enemy of God, all at the same time, deeply loved by God, saved by Jesus, if you would so believe. If you've heard that and you think, goodness me, I want that. I want to run back into the loving arms of my heavenly Father. Not getting there because I perform, getting there because of grace. If that's you, why don't you just raise your hand right now? I would just love to pray with you. Why don't you raise your hand right now? Leave a bit of space for this. Remember the first time I raised my hand, I was so nervous. But then I realized the guy at the front wanted for me what I slightly wanted for myself and I felt a bit more like encouraged. And so if that's you and you would like to step into a relationship with God, your heavenly father, why don't you raise your hand right now, just where you are, nice and high. Wonderful, thank you. Any others? Awesome. And the second call is this, and we're going to do it together because I think it all applies. If, as I've been speaking, I just get the sense that there's people in the room who for the last few months or years even have been walking a journey with Jesus and you've been like, I think I've upgraded to bigger and better things in my discipleship and I want to think about Sabbath and spiritual disciplines and more ethereal topics and learning the Bible and and as I've been speaking, you've heard again the beautiful message, simple gospel of grace. And you just feel like a bit of a homecoming. And you feel refreshed, like the words are like a waterfall, refreshing your soul, 
with the story that touched you at first. If that's you, can I just invite you just to raise your hand where you are? And I'm going to say it's me as well. And as you raise your hand, you're just identifying to me and to your community around you. Actually, I don't want to graduate the gospel of Jesus. I was an enemy of God. He made me a friend. So if those words, I was an enemy of God, he made me a friend, touch your heart in a way. It's so refreshing. Just raise your hand nice and high so I can see. Wonderful, thank you. Awesome. Yep, thank you. Nice and high so I can see. Beautiful. I want to pray for you. There's probably four of us in those two calls that have put our hands up. And so let me pray. As I pray, feel free to repeat these words just in your own heart. Father, you are wonderful. And I am so grateful. Lord, I'm also so sorry. thinking that I could figure this life out on my own, for going my own way, for becoming transfixed on the wrong things, whether those things were good or bad. Lord, I want to thank you for what you're ministering to my heart right now. I want to thank you for meeting me where I'm at. I want to give praise to you, Lord, for loving me as you do. And Father, as we step into worship now, I give you my heart, give you my hands. Lord, I even give you my voice box. And I ask, help me follow you now and forever. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's worship. There'll be a few people with prayer lanyards on down the front. If you'd like to receive prayer, just come and receive. If you'd like to come and kneel and just respond to God in your own way, please, it's so encouraging for the rest of us when you respond in the way that you do. What does worship look for each of us right now as we love the one who loved us into friendship? Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.